been recovering from a bit of a cold, so um, on the recording, if you hear me sniffle every now and again, please forgive me, and uh, hopefully I won't be needing to deal with it too often. Um, I was, um, while we were having communion there, it was, it was interesting because I, I was looking at that communion cup, <clears throat> and I was, I was just thinking about everything that the Lord's done, you know. It's sort of hard to get your head around it, you know. It's hard to get your head around the fact that one man, um, known as the Son of God, would be willing to come and shed his blood for our sins, you know, for my sins. We've been going through the book of Romans, and, um, and Romans is probably one of, the, one of the greatest books of the Bible as far as being able to really explain the gospel. And uh, Paul does a masterful job, um, everything from the beginning right through to the end. But as I looked at that cup, I was thinking of the hope that we have. You know, I was thinking about that hope. And we've got such a hope. You can't get out of bed without having hope in one form or another. The decisions that we make on a daily basis, we, we, we make them with hope. And if we don't have hope, it's really, really difficult to live your life. Really difficult. But the hope that we have presented in the Bible is, um, is a hope that's sure. It's not a hope that we're wishful thinking. It's not a hope that we think may happen or may not happen. You know, When a couple comes together and um, they decide that they want to live their life together, they are looking forward in hope. They're looking forward in hope. They're looking forward to a wonderful, wonderful joy that they're going to have together. They're going to share a life together. And, you know, it begins with that hope. But a hope that's unsure is really not a hope, is it? And yet we've got that presented in Scripture. We've got a hope, a hope to look forward to. And that's what, that's what we look forward to. portion of the Bible that we're going to be dealing with today is... Um, it's not an easy part of Scripture. It's not an easy part of Scripture because it deals specifically with the Christian. It deals specifically with the Christian walk. It deals specifically with the Christian struggle. One struggle. One particular struggle. And, but it finishes. It finishes in hope. It finishes in hope. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and Lord of Prayer. Father, a joy and a privilege it is to share your word. To look at faces, dear Father, that, that look to you in hope. To look at faces, dear Lord, that also struggle in despair at times. But to know, dear Lord, that your word, dear Father, brings the answer. And it always brings the answer. And that answer culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the one that procured for us salvation. And He is the one that will bring us home. He is the one that sustains us. He lifts us up. And He gives us joy. In Him we have hope. And we rejoice in that, dear Father. I thank you, dear Lord, for this morning. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me 
in my speech, dear Lord. Prompt me, dear Father, with the things that I am to say. Prompt me also, dear Lord, and grant me discernment with, um, with also the quelling of my mouth, dear Father, should I say things that are not of you. I just ask you, dear Lord, that you would carry your word home and let it not return to you empty. Let it do its work, dear Father, in the hearts and the minds of the people that are here. And that together, dear Lord, we can truly rejoice, Father, in the hope that you have for us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 7. Some of you might have been eager, looking forward to this particular portion of the Bible. I know that when, when I discovered it, uh, I was younger as a Christian, I was really, um, I was quite pleased actually, in a weird way. Romans chapter 7, we've, we've already gone through the first half of it. We're going to now be dealing with the second half of it, so we're going to be reading from verse 14. Now this is Paul again speaking. You'll notice something that you'll notice particularly that he's speaking in the first person, and that's really important. He says this, and we're going to read it just at the end of the chapter. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I don't know how you went reading through that. I remember the first time I read through that, I thought, what, what, I, that which I would, I do not, and that I would not, that I do, and I, I was trying to understand what that's talking about. What Paul's referring to just in that first portion is he does things against his will. In the end, we think we have a free will. Most of us believe we have a free will. The Bible indicates something really important, that before you're saved, your will is not actually free. Not completely free. The Bible teaches us that we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. If we wanted to do good, we really can't do good. We can't do the good that God's referring to, and that is good as far as God is concerned. And then, incredibly, after we're saved, we have another struggle. Even though we're free from sin, there's a battle going on. There's a struggle within us. We desire to do good, but we can't do good. Not perfectly. So we wrestle from time to time. But the Bible speaks about that hope. And that hope, again, culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, it was about Jesus that God spoke to them in the garden. 
when he, when he spoke about the one that would, that would bruise Satan, that would bruise him, he, he was already foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who would save the world from its sin. That was brought out again when God spoke to, um, to Jacob on his deathbed and he spoke about Judah and he says that Judah's law and Judah's rule in Israel will be there until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is the Messiah. And the Bible then says that unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And we saw also that God speaking to Moses, Moses using and, and, and speaking about the coming of a prophet. He says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. This is that prophet. Remember in the, in the New Testament when they come to John and they says, Art thou that prophet? And he says, no, that's that prophet. That's the prophet that they're referring to, the one in Deuteronomy. And remember, Israel met a pre-incarnate, the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, standing as the captain of the Lord's host at one of the most crucial times in Israel's history. They just crossed over the Jordan and they're just about to enter into their first battle for the land of Israel. And um, the Bible refers to him as the captain of the Lord's host. He was there to encourage them, encourage them about an assurance of hope. He did the same thing again in the burning fiery furnace. Remember there were three thrown in there. There was Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, the friends of Daniel, cast into the burning fiery furnace in, in Babylon. And, 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 the, and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar beheld who was in there and he said, Behold, I see four in there. There are four. Didn't we throw three in there? But there are four and one like unto the Son of Man. Again, to encourage them in the midst of trial, in the midst of the flames. And Isaiah speaks about Jesus as that, that one that was to come that was going to suffer on our behalf. That, that through his stripes we were going to be healed. It happens all the way through Scripture. We look at Job. Job speaks about it as well. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You know, Job went through some serious trials, some serious difficulties within his life, but he knew that his Redeemer was going to live, would live for him. And all through the Bible we've got that presentation of hope. You know, even when Jesus was, was uh, chastising the Pharisees, he said to them, he says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Again he does it. After he rose from the dead and you've got the two men walking on the Emmaus Road. They're walking the Emmaus Road. They're upset. They're broken in heart because the one that they hoped would redeem Israel has been put on a cross and slain and buried. After three days they're walking on the road and, and Jesus actually walks up to them. And, and their, hot, their eyes, the Bible says, were beholden. They couldn't see Christ. They couldn't recognise him. And he asks them and he says, what are these communications that you're saying and you're sad? And remember they were telling him about the hope of Israel was lost. You know, they had a hope. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And what did he do? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets... The Bible says he expanded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If I could, um, if I could summarize this book in one word, it would be hope. 
it's, it's hope. One word summary of the most incredible book in the world. It's hope. And we ignore it to our peril. We ignore it. Um, and we don't have that hope. We lose the hope. And we're dealing with a part of the Bible that speaks about Christians struggling with sin. You know, Christians that are born again, born of God, with the Spirit of God dwelling in them, are wrestling and struggling with sin. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ. The answer to that is the Lord. There's some people that actually believe that this particular portion of the Bible um, is actually talking about unregenerate people, uh, people that aren't saved, people that don't know the Lord. But they're rejecting the fact that you know, Paul is speaking about this in the first person. They're also rejecting the reality that this is speaking about a battle, that the flesh is lusting or warring against the spirit. Okay? There is no wrestle with those that aren't born again because there is no, no other nature within them. They only have the one. There's no wrestling going on. And it rejects also the flow of Romans. When you look at it, you know, you've got the first chapter of Romans that speaks about the ruin of man. The second chapter of Romans speaks about the destitute state of the Gentiles. The third chapter, the inexcusable state of the Jews. The fourth chapter that refers to salvation only being able to come by faith. The fifth chapter that actually brings us the completed justification of the gospel what the gospel does and how we now stand. In the sixth chapter, we see an explanation of what has actually happened to us in God's eyes. In the beginning of the seventh chapter, you also spoke about the law and how legally now we stand. Dead to the law and alive in Christ. Is that a bit overwhelming? And yet there's a beautiful flow of the Bible taking us from one point to where we are now. And Paul, right now, right in the middle, right in this particular point where we now know where we stand legally, okay? We now know where we stand legally. And before he tells us about that mountaintop view of eternal security that we have in Romans chapter 8, which I'm really excited to preach on next time, so it's not going to be next week and the week after, but incredible portion of the Bible, really the high point, of Scripture, in my view, as far as our, the joy of our hope is concerned. Paul now hones in on something that's very, very particular for each one of us as Christians. If you're born again, you're going to identify with this. If you're not saved, if you're not born again, you won't know what I'm talking about. You won't understand it. But I'll do my best to explain it. All right? So at least that way, this is a hope that you can look forward to. So... Four parts of the message. Um, I'll give them to you again up front. First part is sin still dwells in me. Sin still dwells in me. The second part is sin wars against me. The third point will be only sin can have me in despair. And the last point is only Jesus Christ can fill my joy. So back to your, back to your scriptures. So verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual... But I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul here, again, speaking in the first person, he confirms two things. He says that the law is spiritual. Recall verse 12. In verse 12 he says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. 
the law being holy and spiritual, we could recognise its origin is of God. And yet we see its manifestation, its, its appearance, in the law or the commandments. Okay, remember the last time we spoke about this and we, we mentioned that the law of God is being the, the written manifestation or the written appearance of the justice of God. Well, it stands for reason that just as God is spirit, uh, there's no contradiction that the law itself is spiritual. So the law is spiritual. The second point is that I am carnal. Paul here notes that he himself is carnal. Now, that's a contrast to the spiritual. You recognise that? So there's a contrast to the carnal and the spiritual, the two, two, um, two aspects, one against the other. And he men- makes mention to that in 1 Corinthians, and he says, And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. And we've heard the expression before, we speak about carnal Christians. Carnal Christians. Well, you know what? Every Christian is a carnal Christian, unfortunately, because we are still trapped in this state. We're still in this body and this flesh. Okay? So it's not a good thing. Next he comes to the struggle. And this is what we're going to be wrestling with. Verse 15. He says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So what we've recognised is that our wills, our personal wills, are limited in this respect as Christians. We have a desire, we have a changed nature within us. And that changed nature within us desires to do good. We've got a will, that which I would, that which I will. Jonathan Edwards was one of the uh, great theologians of days gone by and he wrote an article and I remember reading it and he basically said that no man does anything contrary to his will. No man. Now, he is arguably one of the most intelligent theologians in history he became a professor at the age of 19 in a university and he became president of Princeton University before it was Princeton University okay he died at the age of 54 I've got letters that he wrote at the age of 10 and I can't even write like that you know and he's writing like that at the age of 10 unbelievable he was an incredibly intelligent man but he's wrong here he's wrong here according to Paul He does that which he would not. He's doing that which he doesn't want to do. It's contrary to his will. So there's a contrast to the the will. And here in verse 17, he comes to a recognition. If indeed he's doing that which is contrary to his will, there's something else going on. Have a look at what it says there in verse 17. He says, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. It's no more I that do it, But sin dwelling in me? There's a separation here between Paul and his sin. Can you see that? Can you see that in the text? Am I making it up? I think it's there, yeah? He says, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. That's interesting in itself. Have a look at the parenthesis there. He says, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Why is that there? 
what have we got this little bracket, this little explanation? Let's, let's read it without it, just for fun. All right, let's read it without it. For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. As a Christian, what's wrong with that? What's in this? The Spirit of God indwells us. And the Bible goes out of its way to ensure that no contradiction is found. See, if you're born again, if you're born again, that parenthesis describes you. That parenthesis is important. Because if Paul said, for I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, then the Spirit of God indwells him. How can you say that's no good thing? Is that not a good thing if the Spirit of God indwells you? He's the only one that's known as good. Remember? When Jesus was asked by the, uh, by the young ruler, and he says, good master, and he says, why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. God indwells us. He has to have that. Now, if this, was, this, this, this argues itself that this can't be referring to non-saved people because if this was referring to people that aren't saved, you won't need that parenthesis. You don't need that. But Paul consciously separates himself from his sin. Think about it. He's consciously separating himself from his sin and he declares his sin as something that still indwells him, still dwells in him. Guys, I know this is hard to understand, you know. And, and, and you know what the reason why it's hard to understand? It's because before we were saved, our sin was a part of us. Before we were saved, there is no separation between us and our sin. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself either. The Bible makes it really, really clear that not only is there no contradiction, that, that prior to our salvation, we are joined together with our sin, that it actually identifies us by our sin. It identifies us by our sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that the unsaved here are not identified by their names. They're identified by their actions. They're identified by their actions. So be very careful when you say to a person who doesn't know the Lord, who's not saved, that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Be very, very careful when you say that. Because there's no separation between the sinner and his sin prior to salvation. Does God love the sinner? Yes, of course. We know that. We know that we love him because he first loved us. We know that he, he, he died for us when we were yet enemies of him. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know that God loves every single sinner. But to separate the sinner from his sin is not what the Bible teaches at all. Not only is the sinner identified by his sin, but the sinner together with his sin will be cast into hell for all eternity so prior to our salvation we were joined together with sin we were at one with it okay now Paul makes very very clear there's a separation there's an actual separation between him himself now the new man and sin
There's another thing about this. This also helps us understand the really contentious passages that we find in, in 1 John. In 1 John, if you've read 1 John, as you're reading it, you're going through it and you're going, okay, so John says here, he says in 1 John, um, in the first chapter, verse 8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, he's speaking again in the first person, plural, though, right? This is John speaking. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And yet, three chapters later, in verse 9, he says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his sin remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Two chapters later, in chapter 5, he says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Hang on. Understand that it's not the real Eddie does not sin. But the real Eddie still sins. Have I confused you enough? There's an element of Eddie that sins. And it's a wrestle. It's a battle that we have. But the Eddie that is born of God, the Eddie that has the Spirit of God indwelling him, does not commit sin in God's eyes. There is no sin. And Paul's trying to bring this out. Because there has to be... There can't be a contradiction in the Bible. Make sense? There can't be a contradiction in the Bible. So we've got to be thinking about something logically. Either there's a, distinct, there's a distinction in our new nature... Either there's a distinction in our new nature... Or there's a distinction in the sin. There's some, some sort of a difference there. The explanation? We need an explanation. Let's look to the next point. Sin wars against me. Point number two. Have a look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So the apostle now recognises a, a law. He recognises a law. He says that when he desires to do good, evil is also present. And he explains it this way, saying, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Two short items to think about. So he says, for I delight in the law of God. The only time the word delight is found in the New Testament is here. It's the only place it's found in the New Testament. It's found here, in this portion of Scripture. And it has as its object the law of God. I delight in the law of God. Hang on, hang on. There has to be a change happening here. See, because before I was born again, before I was saved, before I was a Christian, I hated the law of God. Did you love it? Do you like the speed limits on the roads? I don't. Right? I'm an Italian lead foot, mate. I hate speed limits. Okay? I want to go at the speed that I feel comfortable with. All right? And if that's 130 kilometres an hour in a children's crossing, well... No, no, it's not true. I don't. (laughs) The point is, we hated the law of God before we were Christians. Why? 
Because the law manifests and shows us our sin. It's like, I don't know, did you ever have pimples when you were younger? I hated the mirror. I hated the mirror. Couldn't stand looking at it. No pretty picture to say, but the point is, though, it reflected the imperfections. It reflected the parts of me that I did not want to know nor see. But I delight in the law of God. The object is the law. You know? There's not a lot of people that could say that they delight in the law of God, but Christians can. Christians can because that's our desire. We love the law of God. We trust in it. We believe in it. We have hope in it. I looked up some synonyms with respect to uh, the word delight and its enjoyment, pleasure, happiness, joy, gladness, glee. That's the word delight. That's the word delight. Nothing is more pleasing to the Christian than his or her trust and obedience to the law of God. And we'll see shortly that nothing grieves our hearts more than our indwelling sin. The second thing that I want you to notice, it says, after the inward man. Now, here's where we're going to find a distinction within. The inward man, there's another, there's another nature. An inward man. One that's within, one that delights in the law of God. One that desires to do good. The inward man. Turn forward in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This inward man is that man that God is now dealing with. And he's strengthening this inward man for his purpose. This is the man that is born again, born of God. 2 Corinthians, only a couple of books forward. Chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Verse 16. We'll go to 16. Paul says here, For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Turn forward again to Ephesians. Alright, so you'll have Galatians next. Ephesians is straight after that. Ephesians chapter 3. Again, we've got the same author here. It's still Paul. It's still Paul. You know how you can know that it's always Paul? He begins every epistle with his name. Every, there's 13 of them there. Always a question over, over the book of Hebrews. But Paul. Paul's written this one. Uh, chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, he says... Oh, this is a beautiful passage of the Bible. We'll just read a few verses, just up to verse 20. He says, That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. There's a work happening within us. And this work is in the inner man. This work is happening within you. Turn forward again to 1 Peter. It's a little bit more forward. It's going to be before Revelation. 1 Peter. Now Peter here is talking to another group of people. It's in chapter 3 that we're looking for. So 1 Peter chapter 3. He's actually speaking to the wives. 
It's interesting, though, because he uses a very, very similar expression to the wives. He doesn't say the inner woman, interestingly enough. I know, uh, that's disappointing. I know there's a lot of ladies out there with the current women's lib movement saying the inner woman, you know. But he doesn't say that. It says, First Peter, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 4, he says this. He says, but let it be... Now, remember, the women at this point, what he's, what he's rebuking is the women that are spending a lot of time adorning themselves and plating their hair and making themselves look pretty on the outside, which is a nice thing to do, I'm sure. But what Peter wants to focus on here is something else. He says this. He says in verse 4, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of a great price. So it's this same inner man that is not corruptible, Peter's referring to. The one that cannot sin um, and is in the sight of God of great price. Oh, guys, that you'd be patient with yourselves. That you would be patient with yourselves as Christians. That you would be patient and trust in Christ and trust in Him alone. I know the battle. <laughs> struggled with it now for 20 years. I know the battle of a Christian. But you must be patient with yourselves. And the focus has to be on Christ. It's His Spirit that works with might and power in the inner man. That you might be filled with the fullness of God. It's His power working within you. Back to our passage. So if you've, if you've lost your place in Romans, you need to go back there. So always, always stay there. Always stay. One finger needs to be there. So Paul speaks of the inner man, which is that nature and delights in the law of God. But look at this. He sees another law. He sees another law in verse 23 of chapter 7. He says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Um, John Bunyan, a famous author, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It was a, a brilliant allegory. And if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you really... You're doing yourself a disservice. He, um, Charles Spurgeon used to read Pilgrim's Progress once every year. Some of us read the Bible once every year. Spurgeon read it more than once a year, a lot more than once a year. But Pilgrim's Progress, once every year he'd read it through. And it's the great allegory of John Bunyan. But John Bunyan also wrote another allegory called The Holy War. And in The Holy War, he describes a battle for the restoration of the city of Mansoul. All right? City of Mansoul. And what's happened is that El Shaddai, the king, the great king, has finally taken his throne in Mansoul. But Diablos, another great enemy, wants to fight and work very, very diligently to retrieve back what was taken from him. So you belonged to the devil. Prior to your salvation, he had ownership of you. Once you were saved, El Shaddai, the king, the god of heaven and earth, came and made residence within you. But from that point on, Diabolus wants to regain his throne. And he uses a whole bunch of means. He uses, a, he uses craft, he uses subtlety, he uses lies, he uses guile. He uses a lot of different devices to make his way back into the city and back on the throne. But in the holy war, he's withstood by the sun of King Shaddai, known as Emmanuel. In the Christian, there remains a law in our members and a wars against the law of our minds with the distinct goal of bringing us back into the captivity of sin. 
some Christians have given up the fight. Some Christians have basically said, this is all too hard. And it is. It is too hard. But the reason that they've given up is because they've forgotten the one who sits on the throne of their own hearts. They've forgotten about Christ. They've forgotten that they have won the victory. That the victory is won. The victory is won. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll have a look at this a little bit more clearer. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, again, Paul writing. He doesn't contradict himself when he says what he says. But this will give you another picture of the battle, the war that's going on within us. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 and 17. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You see that? We see a war that a Christian goes through. With these two natures wrestling one against another. And guys, it's the distinctive mark of the man or woman born of God. There's only one nature in a person, there's no struggle. If there's only one nature in an individual, there's no wrestling. If there's only one nature in the person, you won't recognise what I'm talking about here. And in that alone, there's caution. Because in that alone, it means that you don't know the Lord. This is a distinctive mark of those that are born again and born of God. There's only one nature in a person, there's no struggle. Turn to Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. I remembered when, um, remembered when I was really, really grieving for my own sin and, and asking the Lord questions. And, and this passage came to my mind and, and it sort of got answered by God in a very strange way. Genesis chapter 25, we have here... Um, the story of, of, of Isaac and, and, and Rebecca, and, um, and something beautiful has happened here where, where finally Rebecca is now, is now pregnant. She's been desiring to have a child, you know, and the Lord had, had, had not opened her womb. And in verse 21, Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the eldest shall serve the younger. And the deepest wrestlings of, of, of my own sin... I remember asking the Lord, I'm born again. I'm born of God. I have, I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. I have, I have the, the entire Godhead dwelling in me. The Bible indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells within me. The Father dwells within me. The Spirit of God dwells within me. This infinite power dwelling in me. Lord, if it be so, why am I thus? Why am I thus? And he strangely answered, Two natures are within you. Two natures are within you. And you can't do that which you would. And you know what? The elder 
will serve the younger. The Spirit of God will be served by this sin nature. Okay? The Spirit of God will be served by. It won't be overridden by. The Bible makes it so clear that that sin will not have dominion over us anymore. Because El Shaddai is on the throne. It's not sin anymore. It's not Diablos. It's not the devil. You know? And it's just such a beautiful portion of the scripture. I, I, I couldn't believe that the Lord gave that and put that into my mind while I was grieving before him because of my own sin. But guys, if you're not reading the word of God, it's not going to come. I'm sorry, but it's not going to come. You're not going to have the answers. You're going to be struggling. You're going to be wandering around like a mad person. I was. I was exactly like that. I was in a charismatic church. I never had a Bible. I never read the Bible. It was more of a doorstop. Or sometimes I'd bring it to church. But I'd leave it on the parcel shelf of the car. But I wouldn't read it. So here I am wrestling with sin. Struggling with the things that are going on in my, in my head. And I, and I didn't have an answer. Why don't I have an answer? Because this thing was closed. I wouldn't pick it up. The only place where I've got hope is in here. I don't have hope in my own imaginations. I don't have hope in the counsel of a friend. I don't have hope, not true hope there. I have it here. It's the Word of God, and the Word of God alone can give us hope. And that's how He answers prayer. He answers prayer through His Word. And did I get comfort from that? Yeah, I got comfort from it. I got comfort from it. In a, in a strange way, even though it wasn't exactly the same, but it was really interesting. Two natures are within me. And it gave me comfort. Third point. Only sin can have me in despair. Only sin can have me in despair. Have a look at verse 24 of Romans chapter 7. Verse 24, Paul, he says this, A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Incredible it is that this, this man, who we, we, we see his history in the scripture, we see his story unfold throughout the Bible, we see his struggles in the Bible. We, we, we see it because we, we've actually got his prison epistles, his letters written in prison. Um, we've got that. We've got that. Um, we know of the threatenings of, on his life. Um, that's, that's described for us in, in the book of Acts. Um, we know of his first blindness, the, the, the struggle of his sight on the Damascus Road when he saw a light. And it was very bright and, they, and, and it blinded him. And we know also that he continued to sort of struggle with his sight even though the scales did come off. We see that given us a description in, in the book of Galatians. So we know of some of those struggles. We know also about all the privileges that Paul had given up, you see, because he had a position of a Pharisee. He was one of the, one of the rulers in Israel. And, and there's also an indication that he was part of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin which was a Jewish council in Israel another ruling body, uh, but he considered all of that worthless. In Philippians in chapter 3, he says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, 
that I may win Christ. That's his focus. Jesus made clear that Paul is going to be going through some sufferings because, you see, Paul, previously known as Saul, persecuted the church, right? He was taking captive women and children and and fathers and throwing them into prison and, and he was there when the first martyr that we have in Scripture was, was killed before him. And those that killed him took their clothes and put them at his feet to do him honour. He hated Christians. And then Jesus made it really clear when he approached Paul on the Damascus Road. And Paul was converted. And there was a man named Ananias. And he spoke about Paul. And Ananias said, but Lord, Lord, this, this man persecutes the brethren. And Jesus said to him, he says, I will show him how many, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we have some of those sufferings. Turn your Bibles to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, forward again. Keep your finger in Romans though, don't lose that place. Paul gives a summary of events that transpire transpired because of his chosen desire for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. You'll, you'll see some of the things that Paul suffered with. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. My apologies if I didn't say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll have a look at verse 23. Read in verse 23 to 31. He says, he's speaking because he's trying to defend himself because at this time there's a lot of accusation against Paul And he's defending himself in a way. And he says this from verse 23. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labours more abundant. In stripes, that's whippings. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Anything uh, above forty or forty was was considered um, uh, over the top. They were actually considered vile. So they usually got to 31, 31 stripes, not, not 40, as Jews. Thrice, in verse 25, thrice was I beaten with, with, with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A day and a night I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren... In weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my infirmities." The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. And then, while he's sitting in a, in a prison cell, in the book of Philippians, he's sitting in a prison cell, and he says in chapter 4, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. In all these things that he goes through, in all the sufferings that we would go through, we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties, yet there's peace. Yet we can find hope in Christ. Yet there's a settlement of our own soul, and it's a peace that passes all understanding. And we rejoice even in our trials. And we can even say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But here, 
here. Paul's undone. What a wretched man that I am. What, what breaks a Christian? What breaks a Christian? His sin. His sin. It's the only thing I can't stand. It's the only thing I look forward to heaven for that I could be without other than seeing my Lord. So I can, I can put up with other things. But my sin would have me undone. And it does Paul. We find Paul content in all things but sin. Our struggle with sin leaves us truly discontent and it rips away our joy. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The only place we see Paul express such emotional, personal turmoil is here in this passage. Elsewhere, his burdens are for his people. His, his grief is for others. Um, and here it's for himself. And he relates it only to that which takes away our joy and leaves us often quite perplexed and grief-stricken. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? The first thing we were once so happy to ignore is today like a thorn in our side as a Christian. Because once the, the burdens with, with respect to sin didn't exist, we never had a problem with sin, we reveled in it, it was just part of it, so I loved it. And the only thing that would worry me about sin was getting caught. You know, If my sin was made public, that would bother me. You know, If other people knew what I was doing, that would bother me. Now, I could care less what other, other people think. My own concern is what my Lord thinks and what's happening within my own heart. Only sin can have me in despair. Last point. Only Jesus Christ can fill my joy. Only Jesus Christ can fill my joy. Have a look at this last verse. Verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. As though the thought flashed into his mind instantly, you know. We see him give the answer to the question, who shall deliver me from this body of this death instantly? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only Jesus Christ can fill my joy. He is the only answer because he is the one that gave his life to redeem me from the penalty of sin. His grace is sufficient for all my needs. You know, my, my soul is hid with Christ. My, my inner man rejoices in him and my mind serves his law. No matter how often it might find itself under attack. My desire is faith and my delight is his law. It's how I know that I'm his and he's mine. He's the, he's the lily of the valley. You know? It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. He is the lily of the valley. He's my high tower. He's the brighter morning star. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the sweet shepherd of Israel. And he's the one who searched for me and found me. That was his purpose. That's why he came. He says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus. It's to him that I gave my heart. To him I gave my life. And I know that I know he'll lead me home. 
And it will be with his likeness that I will appear, because when I see him, I'll be like him. Why? Because I know that my Redeemer lives. Though like, um, like Peter, I'm going to find myself surrounded by the tumult of crashing waves. And though at times I might feel like I'm going to sink, I know for certain that Christ can bear me up. And if I stay my gaze only on him, I could walk on water. Huh. Only, only two people in history are recorded who have ever walked on water. Only two. Lord Jesus Christ and Peter. One I can explain is Jesus. The other we can't explain apart from Jesus. We can't explain Peter walking on water apart from Jesus. Guys, ultimately it's not about it's not about you. Your soul, your heart, your life is sealed now in Christ. And being sealed in Christ and being saved in Christ, now your life is to be lived for the benefit of others. It's not about you. It's not about you. Sin would have you focus on you. It does me. My trials, my tribulations, the difficulties that I go through, a godly brother also share with me that takes away your focus from Christ. You know, like I needed reminding, and I did need reminding, you know. In 20 years a Christian, and I still need reminding. I'm reminding you, it's not about you. Your life is set. Your walk is set. Your hope is set. It's set in Christ. I'm going to read this to you. I just want you to listen. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. If we're looking to another answer to bring us from despair, we're searching in vain. We're searching in vain, guys. I think one of the things that you need to remember, and I'll close with this thought, is that earth is not heaven. Earth is not heaven. And if you think you're going to have a glorious life here, you might be mistaken. You might be, might be disappointed. Earth is not heaven. Our hope isn't here. It's one thing that we have. We have our hope because we have our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hope that keeps us going when things get difficult. It's hope that we look to in times of trial. It's hope that is that glimmer of life when we're in a dark place. That's what hope is. And that's what you need to be looking forward to. 
That's what you need to be chasing after. And that hope is in none other than Jesus Christ. And you won't understand it without his word. The two are together. What's Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? What's his name? His name is the word of God. You know the Bible says? It says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus Christ is attained his knowledge, his wisdom, everything about him is found out in his word. Yeah, we're looking forward to that time. Looking forward to that time. Right now, we're free from sin, but our hope is to be free of sin. You know, that's mine. The Bible teaches that we are dead to sin, but at this time, our hope is that one day sin will be dead to us. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be with him. We're going to know him. And this is the hope of a Christian, guys. So now it's time to share that hope to others. It's time to share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, so much for the glorious word of God. We thank you for its wonderful truth. And we know, dear Lord, that we as Christians need to commit ourselves to reading this incredible book. This is the book of all hope. Dear Father, if you would open our minds and our hearts and you would give us the commitment that we would have, dear Lord, to go to work, the commitment that we would have to be married and to retain a relationship, the commitments that we have to other things, let us now have a commitment to devour your book, to read it and to reread it and to continue reading it, dear Lord, that when our trials come, when our difficulties come, then we have a reference point from which we can have the only answer that matters. I ask you, dear Lord, that you would be with my brothers and my sisters, and I pray, dear Lord, for any, dear Lord, who do not know you. Even though, dear Lord, we speak of a struggle and of a trial that we as Christians go through, we have a hope. We have a hope of eternity with you. These trials and these tribulations will be over. But those that are lost, dear Father, they have no answer. Lord, when this life is over, their trials and their tribulations will only just begin. And I ask you, dear Lord, and I pray that if any that do not know you, that don't have this struggle within them, that they would be aware of it and that they would know, dear Lord, with every way that they need a saviour. I pray, dear Father, you'll continue to be with us. Let our speech be in honour of you. And let us go, dear Lord, and, and, and come back together. With, dear Lord, we pray if you should tarry. I ask you, dear Lord, for your blessing, dear Lord, this day. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.